Hey everyone, we wanted to start this off with just checking in on y'all, seeing how y'all are doing. Um, I know that we are still in the throes of COVID. There's just so much that is going on in the world. I know that I think a lot of us didn't realize, you know, when March happened, when everything started shutting down, that it'd be July and we'd still be in this. And, you know, it's it sucks. It does. And I think it's important to recognize that because absolutely it's the right thing to do. We need to be staying home when we can, wearing masks. But it is also important to recognize, like, this sucks. This is shitty. Like, it's important to do and we need to be doing it. But damn. I know. Like, it is summertime and I want to do, like, more than anything, I want to go to the pool. But you know what? I have a possible person I came into contact with that may have COVID. So I've been quarantining, like hardcore, as in I have not left my apartment in a week and a half at this point, not even to go to the grocery store. The only time I have left the inside of my apartment is to take Charlie out. And I'm wearing a mask every time I step outside my front door, which, I mean, I'll admit, I didn't always put one on when I would take Charlie out because it's almost like just going out like right in the front of your house. But I live in an apartment complex. There are other people around. And if I happen to be exposed and what if I'm asymptomatic? You know, it's these things that we just don't know. And that's one of the things that makes viruses really scary. You can't see it, but it's there. So yeah, we know this sucks and we know that you guys are doing everything you can to play your part. That's what we've all got to do. But now more than ever, it's just, it's important to check in on people, check in on your family, your friends, check in on the people that, you know, you think are the strongest that, oh, they're good. They don't need, like, they've got this. Check in on them because you don't know. And sometimes, you know, just, just a text of, hey, I want to check in, see how you're doing, I miss you, or whatever, is huge. Especially when, you know, right now, our social contact with each other is over phone or over video. Also, definitely check in on your extroverted friends. They are still really struggling with this. I know some of us introverts at the beginning, I don't know if we're all still thinking this now, but at the beginning it was like, yay, more me time. This is awesome. Yeah, okay, it's been four months and I'm like, okay, I need a break. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely thought like, oh, I got this because I basically inadvertently quarantining since early mid-February. So... Once everything really started coming down, I was like, y'all, I'm practiced. I'm a pro at this point. But yeah, no, it's, um, as someone who's very introverted, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. So anyways, we just wanted to take this opportunity to check in on y'all, see how y'all are doing and, and let you guys know we're thinking about you. Yes, we are. So hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And we're doing okay. We're doing all right. We're all right. right. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're hanging in there. We are that poster that's in every just bad corporate break room with the cat hanging on the tree that just says, like, hang in there. Which, you know, when you really think about it, it's like, it's kind of fucked up that this is at work. Just <laughs> Like, hang you'll in there. survive. <laughs> <laughs> just hang in there. You have to pull yourself up. Damn. <laughs> okay. Um, it also just, again, makes me think of all those posters that universally, I feel like we all know, 
you know, the, the ones that you saw in school that were like, thoughts become actions, actions become words. Wait, no, that is a little backwards. <laughs> but, you know, the, that one. Yeah. That it ends with like, your words become your destiny. It's like, oh, shit. Damn. Okay. I mean, I'm a little bit partial to the ones that are actually, like, a little bit of a, a negative take on it. Like, you know, you see the tip of the iceberg and, you know, it's just like, oh, it's barely scratching the surface or s- some shit like that. Because it's <laughs> really, there's a, you know, icebergs, the majority of them are underwater. Which, if you didn't know that, then you aren't obsessed with the Titanic. True. <laughs> I feel like Tyler told me all about icebergs after I even knew about them. And then I learned more. This has been a life thing. Yeah. Yeah. From from the age of like five. I was like, um, did you know that? Um, you know how five year olds are. I love how you pushed up your fake glasses. I didn't wear glasses when I was five. I didn't get glasses till middle school, but. Probably needed them when you were five. Yes. I was very blind in middle school. <laughs> Yeah, I had the braces and the glass at the same time. And acne. And the acne. Same. Yep. <laughs> Our middle school experiences. Uh, dark days. Yep. Well, we haven't talked about it in a couple of weeks, so I just want to do a reminder about our Patreon. If you haven't checked it out, go ahead and hop on over to Patreon. We've got Murder Minis galore over there, which is not a new thing. I just mean we have a lot of Murder Minis. Those are additional episodes that you can get only through our Patreon. And we also want to welcome a new Cabernet Sauvignon convict, Holly Varjak, to our Blood and Wine family. Welcome, Holly. Hi, Holly. We are so glad to have you as part of our Blood and Wine family. Yes, and Holly is actually going to get to direct her own episode. So Holly will be reaching out to you soon, so you can start thinking, let us know your thoughts. This episode will be your choice. Not this episode, this episode, but like a future episode. Yes, a future episode. Also, make sure to uh, subscribe on whatever podcast listening, whatever you're listening to us right now on, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, I think Pandora. We're on Pandora now, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay, cool. Pandora, what, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, everyone's favorite, SoundCloud, that's our host, but you know, all of the, all the things, uh, however you listen to podcasts, find us, hit subscribe so that you can find us every time we release a new episode every Tuesday morning. Not the store, but the time. That's where I got my rug, though. At a Tuesday morning. Yeah, I like that store. <laughs> I've never been inside one. They're fun. All right. I think we're just going to jump headfirst into the topic today. And by today, I mean right now. Okay. <laughs> so Tyler and I have talked about this for a while now as just a topic idea that we want to do. Because we do all these different topics and we each pick a single case. But we all know full and well that some of these topics have way more than two cases. Some, maybe they don't because we like, you know, shoehorned it in there. But the majority (laughs) of them, they have a lot more. I mean, especially when you listen to episodes that we've done in the past, like, brutal murders. There's a a lot of brutal murders. (laughs) It would fall under that. So this week, we're going to be talking about Murder at Work too so those times when you're at your job doing your thing murdered we're gonna go into that you're sitting at the break room table next to the cat poster dead murdered guess you couldn't <laughs> hang on <laughs> oh shit that's that's dark <laughs> that's you, dark I, I like the dark ones no i'm just kidding but yeah so we've got two 
really insane cases that we're going to tell you guys today. Yes, we do. But before that, we need wine. So I'm going to uh, skedaddle over to the fridge and get my bottle. Same. All right. Finally, I have my Olivia Pope glass. I have my wine, which it's not Olivia Pope glass. It's a round Ikea glass. But it's the it's the like round ball. You love that glass. one. Yeah, it's your Olivia it's Pope m- glass. It's my favorite. If anyone can ever find me ones, though, that have the like four foot long stem that she has, message us, I guess. I almost said text me, but. <laughs> <laughs> Those are, they're out there. I've seen them. I want it. Okay, but yes. So along with my glass, I have my wine. And this is the 2019 El Viejo de Valle Pinot Noir from Chile. Yeah, I picked a Pinot Noir. And mostly because of the bottle and the label. And like my last wine, it was another new one at my bodega. That at this point, Brittany and I are pretty sure that uh, they're buying them just for me. No, I'm positive. I was telling Tyler they probably know his wine selections better than he does. And they were like, ooh, let's bring in... Okay, no, so he normally spends between 10 and $15. Let's look in that range. He's not biased to red or white. He'll drink either. Don't No, no Rieslings. Come on, are you serious, dude? And they literally just got all these new wines for you, and they're waiting on you to try them. You may want to, like, next time tell them, be like, hey, you should listen to my podcast if you'd like to listen to reviews of your inventory. There you go. I don't know. I think I've been mean to them once or twice. I don't... Maybe I haven't. I just don't (laughs) trust myself in the past 115 episodes not to have said something snide and bitchy. (laughs) Well, thankfully, you haven't been around them for 115 episodes, but... About half oh, of that. Okay. <laughs> That's that is true. Um anyway, so El Viejo de Valle, it translates to the old man of the valley. And the label, it celebrates this nineteen fifties Chilean street graffiti. Black and white, and it's patterned kind of I wouldn't call it graffiti, like as we think in the US, like, you know, the big black letters and spray paint. But it's this beautiful, like, art motif with patterns and tessellations going on. Honestly, it looks like it would belong on the the skirt of the girl you went to high school with who likes to read a lot and has that one purse that's made of, like, 12 different fabrics. And she's really awesome and really smart and has a really colorful skirt that has all these on it. You know who I'm talking about. It's anyway. A, it's a really cool bottle. I think it's gorgeous. It's one of my favorite bottles that I've had, and which is why I picked it up. The grapes, the Pinot Noir grapes in this wine, they're actually grown in volcanic soil on the El Descabezado volcano in Chile's Central Valley in the Andes. And this wine, it's described as a deliciously long, bright, and textural Pinot from these cold, stony vineyards deep in Central Valley's old glacial riverbeds. Apparently, we're going to National Geographic, this wine. Summer fruits of red currant, raspberry, and wild strawberries on the nose follow through to a juicy palate. And it also has a touch of oak that adds a spicy complexity. And they said that it pairs really well with finger licking marinated ribs, pink lamb. Ew. Ew. And <laughs> I just don't like the phrase pink lamb. And roasted veggies. Or a mushroom and chicken risotto, which sounds so fucking good. I'm going to make some homemade risotto. I don't have the right rice. I have jasmine, so it would probably wind up 
being more like a chicken kanji, but whatever, I'm gonna make it. Yeah, on the back, it basically just says exactly what I said. Uh, ew, except it. Bright, textural, juicy wine rounded with a lick of creamy oak. Ew. I don't like those. <laughs> I don't I don't like the adjectives y'all using. <laughs> a lick of creamy oak. That gives me the same feeling of when you go to the bar just to hang out with friends and the creepy old guy is hitting on you. He wants That's to get a, a lick, lick of, of creamy you. oak. He wants a lick of creamy oak. Anyway, ooh, wow, that smells barrelicious. That's some, like, booberry cereal going on, but not sweet. I'm really interested to see what you think of this, because I don't think I've ever had a Pinot Noir from Chile. I don't know if I have either. This is going to sound weird, but it smells like I want it to be a little sparkling. Like, just a little Lambrusco-esque. I was about to say, you're getting Lambrusco vibes? Yeah. Mm, okay. I'm excited. I'm going to let this breathe, I guess. And you tell me about what uh, wine you're drinking today. For this episode, I'm doing the 2018 Clos Dubois Chardonnay from California. And this is one you have probably seen at the store. It is fairly common in most grocery stores, liquor stores, Amazon. That's actually where I got it off of Prime Now. So it runs about 9 to $10. And it is, y'all, I did it. It's an oaky Chardonnay. It's been a while. I'm interested to see how I feel about this. Have I turned you off of Oaky Chardonnays? Yeah, I think we've talked about this before, how I have just been so into, like, I will drink an unoaked Chardonnay, specifically French ones. I love them. But Oaky ones, I don't know. I think it's because I've fallen so in love with Sauvignon Blanc. It's pulled me away. Y'all, I, I think that means I've won in the battle of who's going to win on wine tastes, who's going to influence the other. I think I won. No, because I guarantee you drink a whole lot that you didn't use to either. I mean, yes, but as far as, you know, our main battle was the Chardon- the Oaky Shard versus the Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, I think you did win that one. Guys, I've won. <laughs> Episode over, I've won. No, but describe to me your Oaky Shard. Sounded like a weird sentence for some reason. I don't really know why. <laughs> Sounded um... like a lick of creamy oak. <laughs> so this one is a brilliant silver straw yellow color. It has intense aromas of apple blossom, ripe pear, and sweet lemon drop that are also complemented by toasty oak, spice, and cream. So maybe our wines are going to taste uh, the same. They won't. I mean, <laughs> I think one of the main things I hate so much about the creamy and wine is there's no part of my brain that can't imagine <laughs> just like pouring a little bit of cream into it and watching it probably instantly curdle ew probably Gross. also just like a fatty wine Ugh. i don't like it i don't like it either Ugh. dairy and wine no thank you except cheese and wine <laughs> except that kind of dairy and wine <laughs> <laughs> but pairing a glass of wine with a big tall glass of room temp milk <laughs> Ew. (laughs) (laughs) This Chardonnay has a silky texture that's overlaid with bright, juicy flavors of ripe apple and pear for a very nice, long, and fresh finish. Chardonnay, as you know, complements, or maybe you don't know, but Chardonnay does complement a wide variety of foods because it is a heavier white wine, so you can drink it, I was about to say eat it, you can drink it with some heavier dishes. A few examples are fish prepared with a lemon butter sauce, 
pasta in a cream sauce, like a nice Alfredo, and herb roasted chicken, which, I mean, chicken and Chardonnay, they're like married, I think. It's the C's, the CH's. Chicken and Chardonnay. Mm. I didn't buy them a wedding gift, so. This one, I guess the next step is to open it. Y'all, I'm struggling a little bit right now. This one is a regular cork. So I'm going to get my key here. Oh, yeah. Mine was a screw top, if y'all couldn't hear that. I've gotten so much better at using this. You'll be proud of me. Remember when I used to just struggle hardcore? That was only like four episodes ago. I've had some practice. It's not a real cork, it's plastic, which is why there was absolutely no sound. I mean, I heard it go bloop. It was little. This is a light Chardonnay. Look how it is. That's like uh, Pinot Grigio. Now I know what it meant by silver straw, because yeah, it's it's not pea colored. (laughs) I know. I was about to say, like whoever peed that out is decently hydrated. I mean, they could they could drink more water. So it smells like a Chardonnay. I'm getting a little bit of melon, which I'm trying to figure out, like, what do apples and pears smell like together? Maybe a little bit of banana, actually. Ew. But yeah, I am looking forward to giving this a go. Um, Like I said, you know, these wines that we see at the liquor stores and at the grocery stores and wherever you buy wine, and they're everywhere... They're there for a reason. Like, they're popular for a reason. And a lot of the times they are in this, like, $10 range. But all right, Tyler, are you ready to cheers and taste these wines? I am ready. Cheers. Cheers. Oh. Mmm. Tell me about yours. Oh, you would love this one. You think? You would love it. It's very minerally and almost bitter. Because I was thinking I was going to get a punch of fruit with the, like, red currants and raspberries and whatever else it was telling me. No, it's not fruit forward at all. The fruit is definitely taking a backseat to that minerality. And I would say probably a lot of it has to do with the volcanic stuff. I mean, I'm not tasting, oh, like, sulfur and stuff. But it it has a very strong earthiness to it. And it packs a little bit of a punch. It's a thinner wine. It's not super viscous, but it's a Pinot Noir. But the flavor power behind it, it drinks like a much heavier wine. This is good. This is a Pinot Noir I would want to have. Not with pink lamb. No. The only lamb I like is in a Yiddo, but I would say... This would go super well with, like, a real hearty pasta dish with, like, tomato sauce and maybe, like, a braised beef. You know, those... Yeah. What am I thinking of? Pasta. I, I can only think of barbacoa, and that is wrong cuisine. That is... That's Mexican food. <laughs> but, um... So, anyway, this one is great. I bet it would also go great with barbacoa, but this is a damn good Pinot Noir. I'll have to drink on it more... This might have just knocked Mayomi Pinot Noir out of the number one spot for me. Whoa, those are fighting words. I know. Mayomi's coming for us. (laughs) I meant, like, I'm going to fight with you. Oh. (laughs) Why? I like Mayomi. No, I know, but you'd like this one more. I guess I need to go to your bodega, but I can't come see you because, you know, social distancing and all. No, you can't, but please don't come for my wig. Your wig? 
You're not gay. You don't get it. No, I don't. Went right over my head. <laughs> God. So, do, do you want to hear about my Chardonnay? No, I want you to start watching some Drag Race, but in the meantime, sure, I'll, I'll hear about this little Chardonnay you got. Okay. So, it is definitely getting the oaky, but it's not super oaky. It's a lighter, buttery taste. So, I would say it's like oaky and creamy. But I'm definitely getting <laughs> Tyler's face. It's like, that Ew. sounds revolting. <laughs> I'm just thinking like drinking wine, but also having a piece of toast. I don't <laughs> want that. <laughs> I don't like that. This ain't Civil War times. Don't need to have bread soup. What are you talking about? That's just toast brunch. Soup. Toast soup is brunch. Brittany, you need to go to better <laughs> brunch places. No. At I... least one that'll serve like eggs. <laughs> no. No, not toast soup. That's disgusting. I meant like bread, like having toast with your wine. It's just called brunch. Oh, yeah, but not in the same mouthful. No, that's true. But I am picking up on a little bit of apple, more pear than apple. And I really think there's a little bit of banana in there as well, because there's something that's a little bit not necessarily sweet, but it's not this tart which is why I'm thinking I'm tasting some more, definitely more pear than apple. Although it also doesn't say green apple, but y'all, when I think of apples, I think of green apples. But now if I think of a golden delicious, maybe that's what it is. I think of honey crisp because they're the size of your head and just the best apples ever. <laughs> it's a, that's a meal of an apple. What'd you have for lunch today? An apple. I had an apple. I will say... This is a decent Chardonnay. This is a good one. I can see why it's always on the shelves. It's not my favorite. I actually was hoping for a little bit more oaky since I was going back to my oaky roots. And by that, I meant like tree roots and it came out like oaky, like because we grew up in Oklahoma and that's not yeah, what no, I meant. I, I heard that too. I'm going back to my roots. Anyway, it's a decent one. I mm. say if you are a Chardonnay drinker, this is a great one and you should totally give it a try. Nice. Okay. Well, we've got our wine. We've talked about our topic. Tyler, tell me about your murder at work. It's a doozy. Let's just say in this murder total, there's a comma. Okay, here we go. Yep. So when Brittany first told me this topic, what it was going to be, I definitely had quite a few ideas. The first one that popped in my mind was the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in New York. I kind of wanted to go that lens of murdered at work because in our previous episode it was very much like you know killer co-worker or you know shot at work kind of th something like that yeah and so i wanted to take it more i don't know bigger scale kind of thing but with the tri triangle shirtwaist factory fire i feel like a lot of people know it or at least know a little bit about it and it feels like something that's very historical and it feels like something on that scale that just like, oh, happened way back when. And not really something that happens today. And that is so far from the truth. And so my second thought was the Sangpoon department store collapse in Seoul. I think it was in Seoul. It was in South Korea in 95. It was like eight floor department store just like collapsed down. It's crazy. This is seconds from disaster episode on National Geographic about it. But it, I don't know, it, it wasn't, it didn't really have like the, did have the criminal piece to it, but not as much. And then I remembered this case and was like, yeah, I think this is one, a lot of people heard about it when it happened. 
and pretty quickly forgot about it. And it's probably one of the worst cases of workplace murder that I've ever heard of. And it is the Rana Plaza disaster. You know, I was about to ask you how you know so many different, like, hazardous work disaster things. And then I was like, oh yeah, duh, this is the HR dude. Obviously, you know know, these. I work in HR and I love National Geographic. So where those two, like, Venn diagram circles coalesce is hazardous workplace disasters. I could go on. I've talked to Brittany at least multiple times. I want to do the Bhopal disaster in India which is another insane case that I I will do at a future time. Um, but for this episode, I'm doing the Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh. And the sources I used, uh, the Wikipedia article for the 2013 Dhaka garment factory collapse, a New York Times article by Dana Thomas, a PBS article by Larissa Patko, and an article from the International Labor Organization. HR. Of course you did. You know, I will say, I don't know a lot about these types of disasters. So pretty much all of those that you listed, I've never heard of any of them. Maybe I need to better educate myself about this kind of thing, because it sounds like it is something that keeps happening. So I should be aware of Mm -hmm. this. So I'm looking forward to is not the correct phrase, but I'm interested in what you're about to tell us. Yes, I would definitely... There's a couple documentaries on the Rana Plaza disaster that you should absolutely watch. And again, you can find episodes of Seconds from Disaster on YouTube. It's National Geographic show. They take different disasters and kind of break it down of like the story of it from like the perspective of those who were involved. And then they have experts weigh in and then kind of retell the story of it through the lens of like the knowledge of what's actually happening. Really interesting. First episode they ever did was on the Oklahoma City bombing. Highly recommend if you are interested in shows about, like, plane crashes and disasters and stuff like that. Seconds from Disasters, damn good, y'all. Anyway, I don't think the Rana Plaza disaster is was ever on Seconds from Disasters, so... This building, the Rana Plaza, it was owned by a man named Sohel Rana. So, the building, Rana Plaza... It was owned by a man named Sohel Rana, and he was allegedly a member of the Jubo League, which is part of the Bangladeshi like political party that was in power at the time. So basically, he was he had connections to people that were currently in government and currently in power. And the building, it's this eight-story concrete building that honestly looks like if you just enlarged like a shipping container. Oh. And made it out of concrete. You can look up pictures of before it collapsed, but it does not look good. It doesn't look safe, and it wasn't. The building housed a bunch of different garment factories, and it employed about 5,000 people in this building. There were several shops, a bank was in the building, I think there were some apartments as well. And the factories that were in this building, they manufactured clothes for different brands such as Benetton, Bon Marche, Prada, Gucci, Versace, Moncler, The Children's Place, El Corte Inglés, Joe Fresh, Mango, Madelon, Primark, and Walmart. And I think I may have mispronounced like half of those. I'm not a fashionista as much as I want to be. 
Yeah, a lot of different brands. That's so many. I thought you were going to list like four. And um, I mean, this is a big part of it, this like fast fashion. And I, I go into it quite a bit later. But like, you know, when you see clothes that are like made in Bangladesh on the tag, like just just remember these conditions and stuff. Also, I'm just going to take the moment to add in my zero waster note of the episode, because I guarantee what you're about to go into is part of the reason why fast fashion is not great at all. Mm-hmm. And you guys buy secondhand. Like I am telling you, there are so many clothes out there that deserve a second life. They're not just because someone else has owned it and worn it doesn't mean it's not still good and usable. I have a lot of what I would mm-hmm. consider my quote unquote high dollar items that I paid pennies for in comparison to what someone bought them for by getting them at secondhand. Oh, most of my like brand name, brand name, like my Ralph Lauren stuff. I, I got it like Goodwill or other thrift stores because it's super nice. And, oh, I can get this same shirt that's in the store, $90, and it's five bucks here. Well, and also you're reusing those resources instead of, mm-hmm. because when you think about it, I know you don't oftentimes think about clothes as something that gets thrown away, but they absolutely get thrown away and they just go rot in the landfill when, you know what? There are some people who can't get clothes. So, If you do happen to be someone that has been throwing away your clothes, please don't do it anymore. Just donate them. It is an extra step on your part, and you don't even have to go to one of the places that sells them. There are plenty of places where you can just drop things off and donate them to a lot of Mm -hmm. different nonprofits. But I'm just going to, you know, I'll jump off my soapbox now, but secondhand clothes are an amazing thing. They're a fantastic resource, and it helps a lot of people get clothes when maybe they couldn't any other way. Also, just piggybacking on that, you know, if you receive things like, oh, makeup for Christmas, or you get a free palette, and you're like, I am never going to use this. I'm going to let it sit in my drawer until it goes bad and throw it away. Donate it. Like, makeup and beauty things, I mean, also different hygiene products like tampons and pads and stuff are always, always so needed by, like, local women's shelters. Because, I mean, just... Think of the power of, like, a tube of lipstick for someone who escaped a violent situation and has nothing. That can be so huge. So, another thing I just want to throw out there. I love that. That is something you don't often think of, and that is powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, Rana Plaza. So, this building, it... When I say it looked unsafe, y'all, yes. So, again, remember, eight-story concrete building. Well, the upper four floors of it were built without a permit. The head of the Bangladesh Fire Service and Civil Defense said that the building was meant and, like, permitted to be built as this, like, four-story building that was supposed to be, like, shops and offices. And instead, what the builders and the owners did was they doubled it and said, let's have it be the exact same strength as if it was, you know, for desks and people walking around. And use it for factories and big-ass heavy machinery that moves and shakes. And it's probably not safe for this concrete building. No, because I'm thinking it wasn't built with, like, the other shaking I think of is, like, earthquakes. So I'm pretty sure it wasn't up to earthquake code. Nor were Uh, those floors probably able to hold that amount of weight. Exactly. And not only the weight of the big factory machinery, but the weight of the extra four floors on top of it. Oh, right. Yes, because... They just threw those up there because 
they wanted to. Mm, yeah. And other architects had previously stressed the risks that were involved in placing factories inside of buildings that are made just for shops and offices. Because, again, the structures are not built to be strong enough for the weight and the vibration of this heavy machinery. The owners, though, were like, yeah, but it's cheaper, so we're going to go forward with this. So on April 23rd, 2013, the day before the building collapsed, there were cracks that started showing up in the building. And a local TV channel, I think it was a news station, like went there to film it. And they were cracks, not just like, oh, some little hairline cracks in the wall, like you might see if you're in an old house and it kind of shifts. Cracks big enough for some of the workers said they could like put their hand through it. Whoa. In this concrete wall. And so right after those were discovered, the building was evacuated and the shops and bank that were on the lower floors were closed. But later in the day, Soel Rana, the owner of the building, told the media, told the news that the building was safe and the workers should return tomorrow. And not even just being like, they should come back, all's good. He advised some of the managers in the building and stuff, and the managers basically threatened to withhold a month's worth of pay from some of the workers who refused to come to work because they were scared for their lives. That is so many levels of disgusting and fucked up that I don't even really know how to respond. Yeah, this building is literally cracking with cracks big enough for you to put your arm in. And these people are being told, if you don't come back to work, we're taking a month's worth of pay. I feel like something like this, and I didn't even think about this until just now, this really resonates on a different level today because a lot of us are working from home because our companies were like, you know what? It's not safe. And not everyone is still working from home. Some people have gone back to the offices, but there are some companies mm -hmm. who have yet to push that mandate forward. And mine is one of them. So y'all know I've been working from home since March, and I probably won't be going back into the office until next year sometime, which is really crazy for me to say, because I know there's still six months of this year, but that's literally just how things are looking. Mm -hmm. But just to think that... What we're facing right now is different. This one, you know, this was such an obvious, glaring structural error. Not that the fact that coronavirus is a thing and exists and is real is not also obvious, but you get what I'm saying. Like, this was, yeah. like, this building was evacuated, and the very next day, he's like, nope, come back. And then the threats, like, that makes my stomach churn. Mm -hmm. The threats of, like, well, if yeah. you don't show up tomorrow, then you're not getting paid for the next month. And it's, I mean... A lot of the workers and staff are the primary or only breadwinners in their family. And they're not making much, but they're making enough to survive. A month's worth of pay is being docked. I mean, for most people across the world, it's enough to force you instantly into poverty. But especially for a lot of the workers here, like that's an unsurvivable loss of income. Right. So the next day, on the morning of April 24th, as people were getting into work, there was a power outage. And the managers were like, it's fine, don't worry about it. And the diesel electric generators on the top floor were started. And these are the kind of generators that are gigantic. And when they start, they vibrate. And this time they're vibrating. And, you know, usually if they're on, you can kind of feel it. The whole building vibrates a little. The whole building vibrates a little more this time. And about... 
8.57 in the morning local time. The building is full of people. Everyone's at work. The building collapsed. All eight floors just started pancaking onto each other. Oh my god. And these are huge concrete slabs. I mean, just think like... You know, we, I feel like we picture factories and we often might picture like an auto factory or something like that. Like a single floor, really wide open space. That eight times collapsing on each other. The only floor that was really left was the ground floor. Parts of the ground floor. Everything else had basically collapsed on itself and become dust and rubble. At the time of the collapse, 3,122 workers were inside the building, and one of the local residents who lived nearby described it as if an earthquake had struck, but it hadn't. The building had just all of a sudden come down. One of the survivors, Mr. Friedoy, he told his story to the New York Times, and he'd been working at the Rana Plaza for about two weeks. He'd quit his job recently as a, like, nursery school teacher because he wasn't getting a lot of money and he became the new like quality inspector for one of the companies that worked in this factory and he was told like oh you're gonna move up quickly you're gonna be promoted a ton like this is a great opportunity and so he was like yeah you know my girlfriend's pregnant and we're about to have a kid we're also about to get married so I really need the income and just three days before the building collapsed, uh, he and his girlfriend got married. So he worked, um, I believe, on the third or fourth floor. And he described it as just all of a sudden falling. Everything was falling. He was falling. Everything around him was falling. Oh, he survived. Oh, he, oh, he survived, yes. Oh, my gosh. I was wondering how we knew about his story. I just, with this type of tragedy, I didn't assume he survived. Yeah, he was he was one of the people that did survive. And he said when he opened his eyes, he was pinned under a concrete pillar. And as everything started to come into focus, he was like face to face with one of his good friends, Faisal. But Faisal worked on the second floor. And so he's like, how are you here? Like he's not understanding, but because his floor had dropped down into his friend's floor. And his friend Faisal, his skull was shattered. His brains were spilling out, and he described sobbing because he's trapped there staring at his friend whose basically head had exploded in front of him. I almost can't imagine anything worse yeah. than being pinned somewhere, already you yourself going through something, and then seeing someone you love in that state. I've never seen a dead body apart from being at a funeral and seeing an open casket. So when it comes from the levels, for the levels of like, being exposed to that, funerals are different. Seeing something happen to someone is horrible. Seeing someone pass is horrible. Seeing someone be obliterated yeah. is mind-numbing. I, I can't even... Sorry, I'm, like, stuck. I, like, try not to cry right now because that was... I don't yeah. like to think about that, you know? Yeah. And he said... He sobbed through the whole interview, and he said that, you know, the, those memories, they still haunt me. In 2015 and in 2016, at least two members of his, like, survivors network group uh, committed suicide by hanging themselves because of the memories and the survivor's guilt. The United Nations, they had the Urban Search and Rescue Coordination Group, which was known as the International Search and Rescue Advisory Group, or INSARAG, I guess. 
they offered assistance to Bangladesh. They were like, oh my gosh, we see this huge disaster happened. We know that at the scale it is, like, y'all need help. We're here to help. But the government of Bangladesh rejected the offer. They said, no, our local rescue emergency services were well-equipped. We got this. This local emergency rescue group, though, that was there, most of them were inadequately equipped volunteers. Many of them had no protective clothing. They were wearing sandals. I mean, this was who the government was like, oh, no, we're good. We have these people. It's just people from the neighborhood that saw the building collapse that are running in to rescue friends and family and strangers. But the, the government wanted to save face. No, we don't need help. We got this. Wait, so you're telling me they had the UN who's trained and like ready and this is, they can Mm -hmm. handle. And the country's like, nah, we good. We got to save face. What the fuck? Exactly. No, they did it because they wanted to save face. And this local rescue operation that Bangladesh says, these are the people that can handle it. We've got it. They're volunteers. That's so frustrating because I can understand at the beginning of a disaster, citizens running in and helping. I get that. That's a natural Mm -hmm. first reaction before emergency responders can get there. But once they're there, and this is American privilege, but my head just goes to like, oh, the emergency responders show up, citizens clear out. Like if you're not trained, like you get out of there because Mm -hmm. this is a dangerous zone. But they're just letting their citizens and volunteers be the ones to clean this up and do the search and rescue i mean they're risking their lives now not that respondents aren't but like they're not trained for this kind of thing yeah some of those that were buried in the rubble they drank their own urine to survive in the high temperatures because it's i mean it's like tropical heat oh my god i didn't even think about that and they're buried under rubble waiting to be saved Again, while that's happening, the Bangladeshi government, they're being accused of favoring national pride over the lives of those that are buried alive. And also, they tried to end the rescue mission prematurely. Like before they'd actually they, gone through all the rubble? Yeah. Like, well, you know, there's uh, there's no chance anyone's left alive in there. So, but And the thing is, lots of rescue missions are like that after a few days it does become more of a search and recovery rather than a search and rescue. But they were trying to make it more of a recovery and basically sweep the disaster under the rug as much as they could. More than half of the victims uh, were women who worked in the factories. And there was also a large number of children who were in the nursing facilities uh, or the nursery facilities there in the building. And then on May 10th, 17 days after the collapse, a woman named Reshma was found and she was rescued alive and practically unhurt under the rubble after 17 days, two and a half weeks of being buried alive. How did she survive that? I have no idea. But the search for the dead ended on the 13th of May, 2013, and the death toll stood at 1,134, with about 2,500 people injured that were rescued from the building alive. And it is considered the deadliest structural failure accident in modern human history. Yeah. And like I mentioned earlier, a lot of the people that were killed 
were the primary or the only breadwinner in their families. And the law at the time did state that employers who were liable, they had to pay survivors and families of those who were killed. But the amount of money was often nothing. And on top of that, despite how huge this was and the magnitude of death and murdered victims no compensation was paid from the this like law the labor code provision from the employer there were a small number of global like buyers and different companies that had their garments being produced here and some local individuals who set up like donation funds to get some payments to the victims in a couple months after but it was completely voluntary Giving funds to the people who lost people yeah, like was voluntary? donations. Oh my god. Well, the, the donations they were actually getting, yeah. One of the companies that did provide payments was the clothing company Primark. I know we have a couple of them in the States. It's an Irish clothing company, um, and it's huge in Europe. And the places it is here in the States, it's huge. But they offered families $200.00. But only if they were able to provide DNA evidence of their relative's death in the collapse. No, that's... No. No, it started out where I was like, yeah, way to go. And now I'm like, are you fucking serious? Yeah. So the U.S. helped provide some DNA kits, but you have to either find... Hopefully you're able to find your relative's body, and hopefully you haven't buried them yet... Because then you would have to dig them up. And there are so many victims whose bodies aren't able to be recovered. And are you're, you're not able to give a DNA sample. For $200, they're wanting that For $200. It's like, is that amount of money bigger in a country like Bangladesh than it is in the U.S.? Yeah. But the thing is, this company is, they make profits in the U.S. and in Europe and stuff. So if this disaster happened in Ireland... Yeah, they might be paying 50000 or something. I don't know. I pulled that number out of my ass <laughs> to victims and victims' families. Right. But because they can only pay 200 they are. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Well, it's like, then why are you And it gets worse. It? Oh, God, no. Okay. So of the 29 brands that were um, identified as having products that came from the Rana Plaza factories. Only nine of them attended meetings to agree on a proposal on compensating the victims. Several companies just flat out refused to sign anything of compensating the victims. These companies included Walmart, Carrefour, Mango, or Mongo, uh, Auchan, and KIK, Kick. It's spelled like the app. I guess it's a clothing store. Uh, but yeah, they were like, mm, no. We're not going to pay these people that died sewing our clothing that we sell in our stores. No. But the agreement was signed by Primark, Loblaw, Bon Marche, and El Corte Inglés. So how and why did all of this happen is the big question. Yes. To get that idea, we need to take it a little bit more like bird's eye view, little get a larger scope on the issue and look at like... Bangladesh and the garment industry as a whole there. So Bangladesh, it has long been the cheapest place to produce clothes, um, along with Vietnam and India. More than 4.4 million people, mostly women, work in some 3,000 
to 5,000 factories. A lot of them are unlicensed, so the actual number is kind of hard to get. I saw different numbers, different sources. But the minimum wage is 32 cents an hour, or about $68 a month. Oh my god. Yeah, $68 a month. And the thing is, I feel like a lot of times in... The Western world, we can often think of that and be like, well, but the value of a dollar is so different. Not that different. It's not that different. Okay. It might be if a minimum wage was $5 an hour. Oh, okay. That would be, you know, that's quite a bit less here, but that'd be more reasonable. But also to think about why is it that much? And it's because of Western countries like the US, like a lot of European countries, just taking advantage of the people in the countries. It's literally, I mean, colonialism today is what it is. Because these wealthy countries just coming into these poor countries and just taking full advantage of everything. Yeah. And so in the country of Bangladesh, hundreds and hundreds of brands, of global brands that we all know, I've said a lot of them already, but pretty much if you own clothing, there's a good chance if you look at the label, it's probably going to say made in Bangladesh. But they come here to source more than $30 billion worth of ready-made garments or fast fashion garments. And just think about that. The people making these clothing items are paid 32 cents an hour. And the value of this stuff is $30 billion is what they can sell it for. I know a lot of the times it's difficult to pay more for things that you know you can get for less. I'm a bargain shopper. Mm -hmm. I get this. But there is definitely something to be said for buying local and supporting people that you know are making a fair wage. But at the same time, what happens if we boycott all these companies and these people go from making 32 cents an hour to not having a job? And I mean, that would be like a huge undertaking to actually have us all boycott but realistically like what what happens to them then what's better i mean i I think it's an important conversation to have because i don't know i would hope that if you know a boycott or something was done and we said h&m we're we're not going to buy your clothing until it's made ethically and those that are making it are earning a living wage i would hope that they would continue to invest in countries like Bangladesh yeah. and pay more, but I, I don't know. I do know, though, that the biggest thing is, you know, are the clothing and products you're buying ethically sourced and produced? Because there are companies out of Bangladesh that are paying a living wage yes, and are treating their workers, not threatening them to dock a month's worth of pay for going into a clearly unsafe and falling apart building. Well, and you bring up a very valid point of, you know, I was saying like shop local and you're saying ethically sourced, which yes, both. I think Mm -hmm. those should be the things that we look into when we're buying products because we want to support local because we want our local economy to grow and to thrive, especially right now. It's why a lot of us are ordering more from restaurants than we used to because we love our restaurants and we want them to be there in, you know, the next year when COVID has gone away. We'll just say it. Fingers crossed. But you also should be looking at ethically sourced because you don't have to only purchase local, but just know where your money's going. It's so important yeah. to know where your money goes. And I think it's a hugely important thing to understand your role 
in the supply chain, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it would feel different if you were buying a shirt at Walmart and it had a tag that said, oh, by the way, Faisal died making this clothing. Or if it had a tag that said, did you know that the woman who made this clothing was making 32 cents an hour, was making $68 a month, you know, or if it had pictures of the conditions and stuff, you know, would would that make you, I hope it would make most people take a second thought of supporting that brand and supporting that company. I mean, I think understanding where your stuff comes from, it's so easy. It's so easy, like now, especially in the States, to buy something. You know, you you go into an H&M and you buy a shirt and you just think about the shirt and it's cheap and it's cute. But understanding the why it's so cheap and the what that really means is hugely important. I think in the same way that a lot more people, when we think like factory farming is becoming a lot more vocal issue when we look at the foods we're eating. I think, you know, that's not just something we need to think about with like our eggs or whatever. It, it's all of our products. Well, you know, you're really opening my eyes because I like to think of myself as someone who thinks about these things, but at a certain level, I'm also, I like convenience. And so when I need something, I'll hop on Amazon and I'll just order it and I'll get it tomorrow. And mm-hmm. it's fighting that mindset of knowing like, okay, hey, there are some things you don't need tomorrow. You may want it tomorrow. I get that feeling. But if you wait a week, you can support a company who pays their workers enough, who is, yeah. you know, products that are ethically sourced. And it's hard. By no means is there like just a switch we can all flip and all of a sudden everything we spend money on, we're making sure it's ethically sourced. You can, but it takes time and it takes research. And you're definitely making me want to make sure I'm looking into these kinds of things because I've bought probably like four things today and are any of them ethically sourced? Probably not. No. Did I use Amazon Prime to get my groceries? Absolutely, because it was easy. This is very eye-opening. Yeah, it's a big thing to think about. And I very much live in the camp of if a company can't pay its workers a living wage and can't make a profit without taking advantage of those who make the company what it is, then it shouldn't be a company. It should be out of business. If the only reason you're in business is taking advantage of others and destroying people's lives, no, shouldn't be a company. But in Bangladesh, I mean, the apparel industry specifically is one that is just hugely rife with sweatshops. And with sweatshops and with these kind of factories come industrial accidents. Between 2006 and 2012, so in the six, seven years prior to the Rana Plaza disaster, more than 500 different garment workers in Bangladesh died in factory fires because there's everything's cheap. People don't give a shit. These big ass companies making these clothes don't give a shit. And so there's, yeah, there's faulty wiring, but we're not going to pay to fix that. That's money. So the direct reasons for the building collapse were stated as it being built on like a filled in pond. So the structural oh support God. from the ground, not there. Non- oh, yeah. Non-existent. Non-existent. Again, the building being converted from commercial use as it was built to be to industrial being a factory. Yep. The random addition of four floors on top of the building and... On top of all of that, 
the substandard like construction material. So the shitty concrete that was used. All of these kind of really pointed to Sohel Rana, the building's owner, the man who signed off on all the decisions to make this. And a lot of other people were involved. Uh, the government workers who signed all the permits and said, like, yep, this is safe, this is good. Some of the construction companies, like, there's a lot of, like, shady shit that went on. And all of that led to the building collapse. And I'm honestly, with all of this, really surprised that it took that long for the building to collapse. Yeah. So one example that kind of highlights the shitty administrative practices that were going on that kind of combined with the shitty building construction was the evacuation of the building after the cracks. There were a ton of structural engineers that said, yo, this building is unsafe, like it is going to collapse. But the building's manager, so Helrana, he said, it's safe, everyone. Y'all all come back to work. Again, I'm a cut a month's pay if y'all don't come back in. Whereas even if everything else had happened, and he had taken a minute and been like, mm, we should check out and see if it's safe, 1,100 people would have survived. Like, we wouldn't have had over 1,000 people dead and 2,500 people injured. But no, we got to get running. We got to get these this stuff making. And, I mean, the decision by um, so Rana and a lot of the other managers that worked there, a big part of it was due to the pressure to complete these orders on time. And so part of the responsibility is absolutely on these short production deadlines from the buyers and the fast, and the fast fashion industry as a whole. Because in the fast fashion industry today, I saw this, John Oliver did an episode on last week tonight that went over fast fashion, and it's really eye-opening. But an item of clothing is expected to go from a sketch, like, ooh, here's my idea, to on the racks in the store, people buying it in a few weeks, in like three weeks. Are you kidding me? Yeah, the I mean, the, the workers and stuff, they have to get this shit out because they're not only being pressured by their managers and the factory owners, it's pressure coming down from companies like Walmart or other companies that are Primark working in these factories saying, well, we want this shit on the shelves yesterday. I don't care if you got to work 13, 14 hour shifts and they're the unsafest working conditions we've ever seen. We want it done and we want it done cheap. Well, and you also have to consider shipping time. So it's like Mm -hmm. shipping time and like putting it out on the floor time, which is easily two of those weeks, if not three. Yeah. I mean, and just think about listeners, many of y'all are like, you know, keep up with the fashion industry. Think how quickly you might see something on the runway. And then two weeks later, you see copycat lookalike stuff like that for cheap in stores everywhere. That's the turnaround. That's the fat. That's fast fashion. And so on June 15th of 2014, the Bangladesh Anti-Corruption Commission filed a case against 14 people for building the Rana Plaza with faulty design. And just under a year later, on June 1st of 2015, the Bangladesh police filed murder charges against 42 different people. Wow. And that included the owners of the building. I did not expect that. Yeah. The accused, they were indicted on July 28th of 2016. And then on August 29th, 2017, the factory owner, Sohel Rana, 
He was sentenced to a maximum of three years in prison by a court for failing to declare his own personal wealth to, like, an anti-graft commission. So basically just, like, an unrelated thing. Because he and 37 others, including some government officials, are still being charged with murder. I'm not sure. The sources differed, because that's saying 38, and earlier it said 42. So it might be, like, in the two years, four people, like, are, are no longer being charged with murder. Right. But Rana and 37 others, they're being charged with murder, and they could receive the death penalty if they're found responsible for the collapse. But that was 2017, and... As of today, the charges and trials are still on delay. I hate how delayed trials can get years and years past mm-hmm. without any type of resolution. Yeah. And I have to wonder if, you know, those being charged. So Rana has political connections. There's government officials being charged. It just, I mean, obviously my th- brain goes to, well, is there some corruption and shit going on that, like, are they going to ever go to trial? Are there people in high places putting it back? I don't know. Or is it, you know, something that it's three years to go to a murder trial? It's a long time, but in a huge case like this, that's not unheard of. Right. That is the case of the Rana Plaza disaster. Dude. Damn. Yep. Yep, I'm getting more wine. And, I mean, you can see what I meant, like, of why I chose not to do the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. Because I think, I don't know, like I said earlier, I feel like in our heads, that is seen as history. And I think it's so important right now to understand what our decisions have impact in and that this shit's happening right now. 100%. Your case got me more than a lot of cases we've done in a while. Yeah, Which surprised me. Surprised me. So, okay. Yes. So, that, Brittany, what case did you bring for Murdered at Work to Electric Boogaloo? So for this episode, I am doing the case of the Radium Girls. Oof. So I know Oof. I know some people have heard about this, but y'all, this one, wow. So the sources, yeah, like literally I'm just going to leave it that vague. Wow, because it is. Yeah. Just and wait. <laughs> I am I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm let me just get some more wine in my glass. Like you just poured some, but yep, pour more. I I did, but I you know what? I'm just... You're just going to do it. Just do it. To the rim. I emptied the bottle. It's not to the rim. It's not even to the rim. <laughs> I just like to... Our listeners are going to think that I just voraciously chug wine, and they're not on. But... And, like, that's not not right, but, like, there's at least an inch between the rim and the start of the wine. Uh, yeah, I would... I'd say that's an inch. Yeah. It's a little more than an inch. Okay. So the sources I used... I used an article from BuzzFeed by Kate Moore, which Kate Moore also wrote the book, The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. This book is a New York Times bestseller, and if you have Amazon Prime, it's on Prime Reading. I downloaded it recently, and I wish I had time to read the book before we did this episode, but it's one of the most recommended reads when you want to truly know about the radium girls what is prime reading so when you have an amazon prime account there are certain books that they let you read for free so i've downloaded books what? like they're ebooks and you just i have a kindle somewhere that's 11 years old so you can use that but also just get the kindle app on your ipad 
It works. Ah, but the screen is so bright. Ooh. Oh my did god. Did you know? I'm old. No, no, no. But did you know you can adjust it to dark mode? It helps your eyes. So it's where the screen I'm just learning new shit every day. Yeah. So if you go into the Kindle app, you can make the background black with white writing, which is really good for your eyes. You can also make it sepia, so it's more like a book page. Yeah, there are things you can Ew, do. Ew, but sepia is disgusting. It's like beige. Sepia just makes me think, I know, but sepia just makes me think of like, <laughs> let's take a family photo, but make it Wild West. <laughs> I know. Sepia. <laughs> I know, seriously. Like we did in Branson. Anyway. I know. No, but there are some fantastic books on there. The Radium Girls is there. I've downloaded 1984, Handmaid's Tale, like There are great books on Prime Reading, and this is not an ad. I just, you know, we've got that that family Prime account, which means we're using our mom's Prime, but it's fine. It's true. (laughs) The other sources I used, an article from CNN and an article from All That's Interesting by Richard Stockton. So here's a little bit of background. So taking us back in time during World War I, there were hundreds of young women who went to work in 1917. Their husbands, boyfriends, brothers, sons, they were all off to war. And so women went to work. And many of them counted themselves lucky because they got a job at this really big warehouse in Orange County, New Jersey. Their pay was phenomenal. It was about three times the average girl's working wage. And those lucky enough to have this position ranked in the top 5% of female workers nationally. This was something that for one of the first times, it was giving women financial freedom. This is also a time of women empowerment. Again, because all the men are gone. So women are keeping the country running. They're at home keeping everything going. They were landing jobs. Damn. And I mean, this is before women had the right to vote. Yeah, this is before suffrage. Like, definitely led up to it, but before it. Yeah. The work that they did, it was pretty light. The main job that these women were given was to apply a glowing paint to clock faces and instrument gauges and wristwatches for the United States Radium Company. At this point in time, glowing clock faces, both on watches and at home... This was definitely a novelty item. It felt like magic because they always glowed. You could wake up in the middle of the night, look over at your clock, and you could see what time it was. So this was like revolutionary. It was like, oh my god, this is crazy. I guess before then, if you wanted to wake up in the night, so what time it is, you what, light a candle? Yeah. That's weird. Well, and think about it. Yeah, because electricity is not like, I mean, it's there, but... Maybe you don't necessarily have it, or or there's someone sitting next to you. You don't have a flashlight, so you would light a candle, check out the time. Also, just go back to bed, I guess. One thing that blows my mind is that did no one look at this substance that glowed all the time and think maybe that's not a good thing? I think, though, I think a big part of that is, one, how we view radiation stuff today, But if you think about it, the, like, glowing, scary green liquid and stuff, I mean, if you think the earliest stuff, it's, like, Superman, which was, what, the 40s, 50s? I don't know. Something like that. Sounds right. So I bet before then, I mean, nowadays, any shitty superhero thing, glowing green liquid, ooh, that's bad. Also, a deeper side note, I think one thing that was pointed out to me years ago that really was like, whoa, that's deep. It's like the difference between 
how America views radiation and how Japan uses radiation, views radiation culturally. And it's like, oh, radiation for us is Spider-Man and Superman and stuff. For them, it's Godzilla. It's this being of destruction and death because we bombed them for no reason. Look up the blockade. There was no reason. It's an interesting perspective of radiation being like superhero versus the monster. Although in Superman's Mm -hmm. case, like kryptonite is like this glowing rock and it's bad for him. So yeah, depends on the story you go with. uh, Yeah. Yeah. But I guess I get what you're saying by the most part. Yeah. Yeah. But I I wonder if, you know, World War One times and stuff, if that's before the cultural context of glowing green is bad and toxic. And so it didn't have that like, "Mm, we should look into this or was just like, "Mm, this cool. I'm about to go into a little detail of that right now. So this glowing paint was made from the radioactive element radium, which was discovered by Marie Curie less than 20 years before the time that they were using it on clock faces. I love Marie Curie. And she, I mean, literally gave her life for science and is not recognized and lauded as much as she should be. She did a lot. Radium was also quickly, it was put to use as a cancer treatment. And it was actually successful. So because it was successful, radium somehow became this all-powerful health tonic. It would be taken the same way that vitamins are today, and people were fascinated by its power. Radium was added to a number of everyday products, from toothpaste to cosmetics and even certain food and drinks. Oh my god. Yeah. It was not seen like a little bit of radium was seen as this like, yes, that is the missing piece. That is the fountain of youth. That is what we need to cure and help and beautify. I mean, it's it's like radium is the probiotics, how we, how we view them today. It's like radium. Exactly. My God. And so the women at work, they had a certain technique that they would use to be able to paint on these small, small dials. Like think of a watch face. That is tiny. They were taught to slip the paintbrushes between their lips to turn them into a fine point, dip it in the paint, draw in the numbers, the lines, put it back in their mouth, get it back to that point, dip it in the paint. And this was called lip pointing or lip dip paint routine. So every time the girls put the brushes in their mouths, they swallowed a little bit of this radium, the glowing green paint. Oh my God. And we know now that is like, beyond horrifying but you have to remember at the time they they didn't know they being the women who were working didn't know i'll go into more detail so the fact that radium glowed it was one of the things that made it very special and the women who were the dial painters they started to be known as the ghost girls because when they would finish their shifts they would also sometimes glow in the dark And one very sinister side effect is that this shimmering radioactive dust would fill the air. So the paint is, you know, mixed in the air. And so there's a little particles everywhere because science. And so it would end up on the women's hair and their clothes. And so some of the times they wanted to make the most of this. And so they would wear their good dresses while they worked. So that later, when they would go out to the dance halls, they would glow. They would also paint radium on their teeth 
So when they would smile, any suitor that was out there would just notice their just bright, bright teeth. Because they glowed a little bit. Oh my god. No, it, it, trust me, this case goes from holy shit to are you fucking kidding me really fast. Are we just in the holy shit section still? Yeah, we're, we're in the holy shit for a little bit longer and then we're going into are you fucking kidding me? You'll know. You'll, okay. you'll see the transition. So, of course, one of the first things that these women asked was, is this glowing paint? Is this okay? Is this going to hurt me? Because, of course, they didn't want to put anything in their mouth that would cause them any harm. And they were told that it wasn't dangerous and that they didn't need to worry. But that was not true. Ever since radium had been discovered, it had been known to cause harm. Marie Curie herself had suffered from radiation burns from just handling this element. And people died from radium poisoning before the very first dial painter ever even had a job. Men at radium companies wore lead aprons in the labs and they handled radium with ivory-tipped tongs. But the dial painters, they were not given this precaution and they weren't even warned that it was necessary. Um, okay. So the men in the facilities, they get lead aprons, some fucking elephant tusk tongs. Like, are so aware that it's dangerous. But the little ladies painting it, they're they're even asking all the right questions. Not that they should have to. And being told and lied to to their faces that it's safe. From probably the same fucking people who were like, Boys, remember, wear your lead aprons today. Ladies, lick those tips. Like, are you fucking kidding me? I know, but one thing you do have to remember is that at this time, a small amount of radium, it was being touted as a positive thing. However, the belief that radium was a good additive was founded upon research that was conducted by the very same radium firms that built their business around it. I mean, it's like Coca-Cola coming out with a study that's like, Coca-Cola's good for you. Right. They ignored all the danger signs, and when they were asked about it, managers told the girls that radium would just put roses in their cheeks. So yes, it's super fucked up, they knew it was bad, but they're just letting this cultural idea that a little bit of radium is good for you, they're letting that drive everything. I mean, it's literally very much in my case, we actually don't give a fuck about your lives and what it does to you. Because money. Exactly. However, when radium is ingested, it's actually really dangerous. Chemically, it behaves a lot like calcium. So when you think about it, the body uses calcium to make bone. And so when you ingest radium, it's mistaken for calcium and it's incorporated into the bone. So one of the major health risks of ingesting radium is radiation-induced bone necrosis and bone cancers. In 1922, Molly Maggia had to quit the studio because she started to get sick. She didn't know what was going on. It all started with a toothache, and she went to the dentist. He pulled it out. But soon thereafter, another tooth started to ache. So she went back to the dentist, and he took that one out too. Is that what they did for toothaches? Like, my tooth hurts. Like, well, it's gotta go. Probably. I I mean, they didn't have the things we have now with, like, all the caps and the fills and all that stuff. Like, you just took it out. I know, but God, the 20s was a fever dream of nightmares. 
Mike let, well, your tooth hurts. Let's pull it out. Here, take this bottle of cocaine home. It'll make you feel better. I mean, it will give make it to you your feel kids better, if they're getting rowdy. <laughs> if they're getting well, rowdy, I guess you wouldn't want to give it to your kids if they're getting rowdy. <laughs> like it'll make them more if rowdy. They won't wake up for school. <laughs> God. Okay. So yes, they they would just remove your teeth. But once those teeth were removed, ulcers would appear. And they looked like they, they were red and yellow with blood and pus. And they seeped, they seeped constantly. And they made these women's breath very foul. Because think about it. That, that's an infection in your mouth. Your mouth's infected. Ew. Molly then suffered aching pains in her limbs. They were so agonizing that she couldn't even walk. The doctor thought it was rheumatism. Did I say that right? Oh, arthritis. And so he just sent her home with some aspirin. Oh my God. She didn't even get the heroin that they're giving out for the people who have like, I don't know, a fever. Nope. Aspirin. It's the 20s. It's crazy. Like, do you want some meth? I heard you cough earlier. (laughs) The early Sudafed. So by May 1922, Molly was desperate to find out what was going on because at this point she still doesn't really know why she's sick and what's going on she had lost most of her teeth and the infection had started to spread her entire lower jaw and the roof of her mouth and even some of the bones in her ears were said to be one large abscess (gasps) oh i know when her dentist started prodding very delicately at her jawbone in her mouth to his absolute horror and shock it broke against his fingers. <gasps> her jaw, her jaw bone. Her jaw bone. He was <sighs> able to remove it, not during an operation, but just by putting his hands in her mouth and lifting it out. <gasps> what the? F- Leave it in. Leave it in. So did she just have like a little flap of chin hanging below her mouth? Probably, because only a few days later, her entire jaw was removed. In this same way, just going in and lifting it out. What the fuck? What? Oh my! I think I've scared Tyler to death right now because the only word coming to mind is shook. But that is it's not even it. That is eight percent of where I'm at right now. I'm sorry, listeners. This episode is gonna fuck all y'all up. Pretty much, because I don't know about you, but I'm, like, terrified of radium now. Not that I wasn't afraid of, like, these horrifying elements, but, yeah, no, that fear is real. I mean, I'm not going to go play around with plutonium, but (laughs) now I kind of want to be like, okay, Google, what's radium in? Uh, yeah, no, this is horrifying. Okay, uh, continue. What else did they just pull out of her? Was he like, your skull is squishy. Let me just rip this out, too. I mean, basically, Molly was falling apart. She, however, was not the only one. By now, a woman named Grace Fryer was also having trouble with her jaw and was suffering pains in her feet. And so were a lot of the other radium girls. And I call them radium girls because that is truly what they became known. But these are all the women that were working as dial painters. How has Hollywood not made a radium girls movie? I actually think one came out a couple years ago. I've not seen it but i'm pretty sure it's out there why hasn't hollywood done a better promotional campaign for their radium girls movie this you i mean in all honesty you bring up a very big question of more of the why aren't more of us aware of this and i think we can just literally chalk that up to companies don't want this information getting out 
and sexism. Yeah. So on September 12th, 1922, this infection that Molly had for less than a year spread to the tissues of her throat. The disease ended up eating its way through her jugular vein. And at 5 p.m. that day, September 12th, her mouth was filled with blood and she hemorrhaged so fast that her nurse couldn't do anything to stop it. She died at the age of 24. 24. Doctors had no idea what killed her. And on her death certificate, they listed it as syphilis. Syphilis don't do that. Syphilis gives you, like, brain lesions and makes you lose your mind if you haven't treated it for 10 years, but we have penicillin. I know. I hate that they put something that they were like, oh, let's just put something to be something instead of, like, we don't know. I mean, that would be like them putting a car accident. Like, what? That doesn't do that. I know. One by one, the other radium girls started to succumb to the same fate. If it wasn't jaw problems, they suffered from sarcomas, which are huge cancerous bone tumors that could grow anywhere in their body. I think there was one woman who had a tumor like in her abdomen. I think it was on her pelvis that was like the size of two footballs. Oh, shit. And the United States Radium Company... They denied any responsibility in the deaths of these young women for two years. But after talk didn't stop, reluctantly, they hired an expert to look into this rumored, what they saw as rumored, link between the dial painting profession and the women's deaths in 1924. Why did they get to hire this person? (laughs) Exactly. This study was independent, and when the expert confirmed the link between the radium and the women's illness, the president of the firm was outraged, and he refused to accept the findings. And so he paid for new studies to be made, and these new studies, they published the opposite conclusion. So obviously he was paying them off. Yeah. He lied to the Department of Labor about the verdict of the original report, and publicly he denounced the women as they tried to say that their illnesses were the firm's fault, and he stated that their attempts to get some financial aid for their medical bills was, like, they made it up. It was such a ruse. It sounds obvious, though. It's all these mystery illnesses no one can explain, and specifically happening to this one group of women who have one commonality, oh yeah, the radium job. Exactly. This report was trying to shove under the rug the fact that these women's illnesses and deaths were caused by the radium that they were ingesting and were around every day at work. So even though the women knew their work was to blame, they're still fighting this widespread belief that radium was safe. And so it's one of those things where you are faced with what you see in front of your eyes versus what you're being told day in and day out. And they struggle with that. Well, and I imagine making three times the average wage and this being one of very few jobs that could make you independent and it it being like, I can accept these findings or I can accept what everyone's trying to tell me and also have an option to have one of very few options that could lead me to be who I want to be, which is going to be easier to, to believe it's, it shouldn't be put on them to, to not. Well, and also their employer is saying that 
It is not causing the illness. And so you can have that ignorance is bliss and just be like, well, my boss says this is not making us sick. So this isn't the cause. They just haven't figured it out yet. We don't know what the cause is yet. And while that's one thing that we can look back now and say, obviously they were ignoring what was right in front of them. We, we weren't there. And you're right. They were making such a good living yeah. that as sick as it is, how often do we pick money over life? Yeah, well, and it's it's being faced with the, if I accept these horrifying facts that are so horrifying, I don't want to accept them. But if I accept them, I also have to then knowingly grapple, do I choose how I want to live my life? Or do I choose actually living my life? Yeah. And that's not a choice that's easy to make for anyone. No. But it wasn't until the first male employee of the radium firm died that experts finally took things seriously. Are you kidding me? I wish I was, but you know I'm not. Like, does it's the 20s. Uh, that doesn't make sense to you? Oh my god. Wow. When I said earlier that they're like, boys, get your lead aprons, ladies, put it in your mouth. I mean, knew that that's exactly what they're doing. Yeah. But just to put it into the perspective of like, all these women are dying and <laughs> whatever, they have syphilis. A man dies and they're like, wait, something's going on. Something's not right here. I know. And it took one man versus how many women? In 1925, a doctor named Harrison Martland devised tests that proved once and for all radium had poisoned the women and explained what was happening inside their bodies every time they ingested this radium hundreds of times a day. So that's the thing. Every time was a little bit, but a little bit was all day, every day. So that's not a little bit. So as early as 1901, it was pretty evident that radium could harm humans a lot, especially when applied externally. Pierre Curie, which was Marie's husband, he even said that he would not to be in a, he would not want to be in a room with a kilo of pure radium because he believed that it would burn all of the skin off his body, destroy his eyesight, and most likely kill him. Marlin discovered that when radium was used internally, even in tiny amounts, the damage was thousands of times greater than external. So what was happening every time these women would ingest radium is that this radium would be in their bodies and it would emit a constant destructive radiation that would honeycomb their bones. So basically, the radium was literally boring holes inside of the women, inside their bones, while they were alive, and it was attacking them all over their bodies. Grace Fryer, who I brought up earlier... Her spine was completely crushed, and she had to wear a steel back brace. Another girl's jaw was eaten away. Women's legs were shortened and spontaneously would fracture. So you could be walking to the bathroom and break your femur. But what is even more terrifying is that their bones literally glowed because of the radium that was embedded in them. For a lot of women, the moment they realized that they have radium poisoning was when they would wake up in the middle of the night, maybe to go to the restroom. They'd walk by a mirror, and they could see themselves in the dark because they glowed. It would literally show through their skin. I, d I don't even know how to respond. 
this is a nightmare. Does this not sound like some fucking sci-fi novel that someone came up with? Because it seems that unbelievable. But this is a fucking element that exists on this earth before we knew how dangerous it was. But this sounds like an episode that they tried to write for the X-Files and they were like, no, this is ridiculous and like too weird and stupid. We're not doing this. And yet, just kidding, this was 1917, early 1920s in the US. Real life. Real life. And what's really devastating is that radium poisoning is fatal. There is no way to remove radium from the body. Once it's there, it's there. The industry fought against the findings of Dr. Martland, trying to discredit him, but they didn't account for how the radium girls would eventually band together because dial painters were still being hired. And the women who were fighting against this wanted to save those women who were still being brought into these jobs. Wow, the the misogyny of... Well, they're women. They're not going to stand up for themselves or other people. Wow. Except, yes, they fucking will. You damn right they will. (laughs) Women are the people who have changed the goddamn world. Look at any big-ass social movement and change that has happened. Promise you, you're going to find a damn woman leading it. Pretty much. So, speaking of women leading... Grace Fryer, who I mentioned earlier, she was the one who her spine had been like completely obliterated and she had the brace. She led the fight that was determined to find a lawyer even after so many turned her down. Again, this is like this corporate bullshit. A lot of lawyers did not want to get involved. At the time, if you had radium poisoning, you could not be compensated. This was not a disease that was recognized. And there was also a statute of limitations that ruled that victims of occupational poisoning had to bring their legal cases within two years. But radium poisoning, it was really subtle. And most girls didn't start to get sick until at least five years after they started work, which is well past that statute of limitations. My soul just exited my body. I astral projected <laughs> and screamed into the ether. I saw you for freaking a thousand out. Years. I saw you freaking out. I mean, we talked last episode about how much for certain things we do not agree with statute of limitations. Yeah, this is fucking one of them. I know. And it's shorter than the time that symptoms generally show up. This legal battle kept going round and round, but Grace was determined. Eventually, in 1927, a young lawyer named Raymond Berry finally accepted the case. And Grace, along with four of her colleagues, she found herself in the middle of an internationally famous trial. Everyone knew this was going on. But at this point, the women had only been given four months to live. And the company was dragging it out. They're dragging out these legal proceedings. Basically, waiting on the women to die so this can just, like, again, be shoved under the rug. It's just evil. It's evil. It is pure evil. I agree. And as a consequence, Grace and her colleagues were forced to settle out of court. They did succeed in raising the profile of radium poisoning, and it was front page news, and it quickly spread And dial painters across the country were terrified. But the companies they worked for continued to deny responsibility. So again, it's that decision of, 
do I want this job where I'm making a good living, but take the risk? Or do I believe the lawsuits that were happening and, and I should pull away? Or do I, do I believe my employer? Like all the questions. There were more dial painting companies across the country. One in particular was in Illinois. It was called Radium Dial. And their medical tests were proving that the women were showing clear symptoms of radium poisoning. But Radium Dial, they lied about the results. They even placed a full page ad in the local paper that said, if we at any time had a reason to believe that any conditions of the work endangered the health of our employees, we would at once have suspended operations. Which is a bold-faced fucking lie. Because they clearly The fuck didn't. you would. In addition, the company even interfered with the autopsies, and they actually stole the radium-riddled bones as a part of their cover-up. Yeah, to cover up, they stole these women's bones. Listeners, I'm I'm having a conniption, like officially. You are. That is a good description of what's happening right now because you're like flailing your arms, freaking out, covering your mouth, having a moment. Think about how I felt uh, researching this. Wow. Wow. The audacity. I know. The the links that they would go to for a cover up. Uh, this is horrifying. This is not just a case of we didn't know. This is so much active participation in oh we know but young money like are you kidding me i know Catherine wolf was another woman who suffered from radium poisoning and she started her fight for justice in the mid-1930s she was close to her death when her case finally went to court in 1938 and she ignored her doctor's advice and instead gave evidence from her deathbed They were literally in her hospital room recording this, and she won. What a badass. Why is Catherine Wolfe not a name that we all know today? It took so much time, and she finally pushed this through. I mean, shit, this is 21 years? This is 1938? 21 years since 1917? The Radium Girls case was one of the first in which an employer was made responsible for the health of the company's employees. And this led to life-saving regulations and ultimately the establishment of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Oh, sure. Yep, which now operates nationally in the United States to protect its workers. But before OSHA was set up, 14,000 people died on the job every year. Today, it's just over 4,500. And one last, like, really creepy detail and fact to add to the end of my case. Radium has a half-life of 1,600 years. So this element is still embedded in the bones of all its victims. And so the radium girls, they will be glowing in their graves for a long time. Also, radium paint itself was eventually phased out and has not been used in watches since 1968. That's 30 years. So just be careful. If you've got a really old watch, be aware, don't break that shit, because that's fucking radium. You don't want to touch that. And that's the radium girls. Wow. First off, I feel like I am a bad HR person for not knowing that's how OSHA was created, was the radium girls. Yeah. Why do we not know the names Grace Fryer and Catherine Wolf? I mean, 
these are women that changed the world and saved shit. If it went down from like 14,000 to 4,000, essentially, like 10,000 a year, people being saved over what 50 years i mean that's half a million people it's huge that's half a million lives that are saved because of their fight for themselves their co-workers and they're not listened to because they're women i promise you i promise you if the, it had been the radium boys it it would have been a a job that required the lead apron and the gloves and the elephant tusk tongs like well and like wow. it really comes down to the fact that they wanted their watch faces to glow in the dark and you need a delicate Mm -hmm. hand and a pointed brush to make that happen and they were willing to sacrifice women to make that happen while at the beginning maybe they didn't truly know the repercussions of radium poisoning but over time they absolutely fucking knew and they still shoved it under the rug you could have engineered a pointy brush or a way for a machine to do that. I know. And yet instead it was cost saving to sacrifice women's lives. It was the exact same in your case too. Cost savings. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's that is a good point. Because yeah, you can you can have a machine or have people that are pay living wages and live in or and work in factories that, that are safe. Uh, but it's more worth it to sacrifice the lives of women and these these workers across the board because cutting a dollar or two off the price of a t-shirt is worth more than their lives. This episode was very intense, and when we went into it, we both obviously went with more of a multiple murder type yeah. perspective. This case was really intense, dude. Like, man. I don't even know how to put words to everything we just heard and everything we just said. Yeah, I'm outraged and fired up and disgusted all in one. It's a ball of awful is what it is. It is. I 100% agree. Well, thank y'all so much for tuning in. Uh, hope y'all enjoyed this episode. It was definitely a lot. I think it was more than either of us thought it would be going in. <laughs> totally. But I'm glad it was this <laughs> Me big. too. Because these are these are fucking important shit that we need to think about today. Yeah. But if y'all enjoyed this, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us those five stars. We love hearing from y'all. Love hearing y'all's reviews. And while you're at it, be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And Patreon, like we mentioned earlier, for those murder minis. So be sure to check us out. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.